Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We have uh, many times spoken about Vice Admiral retired, former second-in-command of the Canadian Armed Forces, Mark Norman, on this program. And for the last number of years, particularly. And uh, the Admiral has a great number of supporters and fans and uh, people who look up to him and admire him for his courage and his steadfastness. I'm one of them. There are things the Admiral can speak with us about. There are things he will not, may not, and we have the opportunity now to speak with Admiral Norman about issues that affect each and every one of us in this country and big-picture issues and uh, national issues as well. Vice Admiral Mark Norman joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Admiral Norman, thank you so much for taking the time. It's an honor to speak with you. Well, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be with you, and I look forward to our uh, conversation. Yeah. Let me ask you, first of all, since you spent so many years in the, in the forces and you worked your way up through the ranks in the Navy and became the second-in-command of uh, Canada's Armed Forces, talk to us, please, about the men and the women who wear the uniform, the men and the women who sign up and, and are ready to defend Canada immediately and represent us on the international stage. Well, you know, there's some of the most uh, amazing people uh, you'll have ever a chance to meet, and uh, it certainly was one of the highlights of my career was uh, working alongside uh, absolutely amazing Canadians. You know, and what I think is interesting, and we're seeing it now as uh, the nation struggles with the ongoing crisis, that um, we're, we're lucky to live in a country like Canada, and we have amazing people. Um, and they come from all corners of the country, um, and we're seeing them step up. Uh, we've got the first responders, the frontline workers, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, members of the armed forces who are always there, and ready uh, to lend a hand and to, uh, you know, put their own lives, put their own safety at risk in order to uh, to help their fellow Canadians. So, you know, I think this is part of who we are. Uh, it's part of uh, the fabric of our country, and, and uh, I, I think Canadians should be very proud. And, you know, I, I guess the last thing I would say is uh, the, the graciousness and, and the integrity and the loyalty of all those people who are looking after us uh, should never, ever be taken for granted. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when things are quiet, uh, that's, that's the time when we should be thinking about uh, how we ensure that they, can, that they can look after us when we need them. Absolutely. Admiral Norman, uh, I, I just spoke with your good friend Matthew Fisher a few minutes ago about the goings-on with uh, China. And we've spoken a fair bit on this program about international challenges that we face, strategic challenges. You would understand far better than most of us what is going on and where the threats are and where the strategic challenges are. How would you evaluate, and, and I'll ask you to do this on both um, perhaps an international level and then on a, on, on a national level, how it affects Canadians. If we were to, for example, look at Asia first, and, and I guess the, you know, the compass point is, you know, the compass is pointing at China. How do you assess the threat level? What, what, what do we have to be concerned about? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Roy. And, and uh, you know, as you said, Matthew is a, is a bit of a scholar uh, of that area um, and knows it well. But I think I would, I would look at this uh, through three possible lenses uh, for your listeners. The first thing is I would say, um, you know, Canada, uh, based on where we are geographically, our history, um, you know, our, our strategic setting, um, we, we depend on um, what is a rules-based 
system, an international order. And, you know, that order has evolved uh, over over uh, decades and, uh, you know, in particular the, the 20th century. Um, and and it, it really enables us to succeed as a country. It, it gives us the security that we we enjoy. It allows us to trade. Um, it allows us to resolve uh, conflicts uh, before they turn um, kinetic, which is a, a military term for nasty, um, where we start throwing things at each other. And that rules-based system is, is really important. And, and one of the things that's playing out here is that, it, and it's not just because of um, the focus on uh, COVID and all of the impacts of it, but it's been in the background even before that, and now it's accelerating, is that um, some countries are taking advantage of the situation and others are trying to reshape the rules-based system in their favor. And that's partly what China is doing. So you need to look at this through the lens of they're trying to change the rules of the game. And it's complicated, but I think that's a simple way of looking at it. The second lens would be um, what they're doing physically. Um, and that is, uh, you know, pretty scary. Um, and it has to do with the um, extensive and rapid buildup of their military capabilities, in particular their naval capability. But I, that's not just because I'm a former sailor that I mention it, but it's important because they are a massive uh, maritime nation, and they see um, their eastern approaches um, as being hugely significant, and they're basically annexing um, on an ongoing basis territory. And in some cases, they're building um, artificial islands and other things uh, as a means by which they can claim control over uh, extensive areas of maritime estate um, that are not theirs. They're actually uh, contentious uh, and uh, in many cases belong to others or at least um, could be argued to belong to others. And, and they're annexing that territory. And this is not unlike uh, annexation of, of places like Crimea and Ukraine and places that we've seen in a European context. The difference is that though it's inhabited land, whereas now what we're talking about is ocean space. And uh, that's, that's problematic because it, um, first of all, it's, it's against the rules. And second of all, it starts to impede the free movement of goods and people through um, those areas. And then the third, I guess, would be... Um, what appear to be, and, and it's not entirely clear, and others are much more um, uh, knowledgeable about this than I am, but it would appear to be their, their future ambition. And we can see what they're doing and what they've done recently, and that's scary enough. But as we look, for example, to our own north, um, they see themselves as a world power. They see themselves as having um, uh the ability to influence things that are going on in the world. And when I see, for example, China, which is not an Arctic nation, um, now as an observer on the Arctic Council and building more icebreakers than the rest of the Arctic countries combined, um, it starts to make me a little nervous because you don't build those types of capabilities if you don't plan on using them for something. And I think people should just start paying a little closer attention to what uh, China is up to. We uh, in Canada, we hear a lot about the Arctic. We, we know that it's 
We assume it's part of what we own. But Russia makes that claim. Other countries make the claim. The United States makes make the claim. It's really part of our national, it has to be part of our national perspective, does it not? Do we not have to really focus uh, and, and get, our, get a strong focus on what's going on in the Arctic and play our part and make our demands where we need to make them? Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think part of the situation, uh, and perhaps we could call it a challenge, is that um, we have a we have a somewhat romantic view um, of the north, the high north, the Arctic uh, in Canada. And, um, you know, as, as we look at it and as activity starts to increase in that region, I think um, we need to, in some respects, kind of get over that romantic view of it. And we need to start looking at it more pragmatically. And, um, you know, it, it, the Arctic is different in many respects, but one of the things that makes it different from the Antarctic and other parts is it, it's water. Um, yeah, okay, it's frozen most of the time, but it's still, um, it's, it's a maritime area. It's an ocean, and that makes the system that you have to operate under a little different because, um, you know, it, it's, there are parts of it which should always be international. And there are other parts of it, however, that fall inside um, territorial limits, um, in particular ours and some of our neighbors. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a little more complicated than it appears. We tend to oversimplify it, um, and we tend to have this romantic view of it, and I think we need to start thinking a little more practically and a little more um, sensitively in terms of not just environmental sensitivity, but more accurately in terms of strategic sensitivity, start looking at who our friends are, uh, who our potential adversaries could be, and start making a distinction in terms of how we behave. Let me ask you about Canada and the role that we play on the big stage. How do you assess how effectively this country operates within the international community, politically, militarily? How do you assess this? Yeah, I think... um, well, you know, I'll be blunt. I think we can do better. Um, I think we can do better on many fronts. Um, but I think in the context of your specific question, um, we, uh, we, we have so much to be thankful for uh, in Canada. Uh, we are, in relative terms, a very wealthy and very fortunate country. And, uh, you know, I think we have an obligation, uh, just, just as we do in our own communities, uh, to help those uh, who need it. Um, I think we have an obligation to... Uh, to be more active, uh, to step up, and to do more. Uh, and sadly, uh, you know, the world, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, is, is not getting um, any nicer. Uh, and I think there's going to be an increasing requirement for, for Canada to get involved. Um, and I, I think uh, our involvement is going to have to be a bit edgier um, than it has been in the recent past. And I know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's a conversation that we need to have. I want to ask you about leadership. And I said earlier, in the military, leadership is clearly defined, and it's recognized by rank, which is largely earned. In politics, particularly in this time of social media, leadership often seems to many people to be devolving into this popularity contest instead of a competency test. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And what makes a leader? What makes a leader? Wow, Roy, I don't think we have enough time uh, on your show. Um, but, you know, I think, it, I think it's an interesting observation. And, um, you know, all through my career, and I, I know uh, friends and colleagues uh, have had similar experiences through, through their own careers, you, know, you see good and 
bad examples of leadership. Um, leadership is a body of knowledge that, that can be taught, but it needs to be applied. Uh, you, it, it's not just an academic um, uh, theoretical practice. You, you have to really have work at it, and it's hard work. And um, you know, there's no uh, there's no silver bullet. There's no secret recipe, and and it and it, and it applies uh, in different in different ways and shapes and forms. I had many really um, excellent examples. I had some not so good examples uh, in my own career, in my own experience. And you know, I, I one in particular that I remember, and I, I won't name him, but uh, he's a retired Navy captain who lives uh, on the East Coast. And I had the pleasure to sail with him a couple of times in my career. And he introduced me to a term that I hadn't heard before, sort of mid-career as I was coming up. And uh, the term was cheap leadership. And uh, yeah, and, and it really got my attention. And I, I, I scratched on it with him a little bit, say, you know, what do you mean? And Well, you know, cheap leadership in a nutshell is, is basically doing and saying um, things that uh, you think are popular that'll get you short-term benefit um, but aren't necessarily in everybody's best interest. And I thought, wow, um, what a concept uh, and, and what a thing to avoid. Um, but in that one short term, he taught me uh, so many lessons, and he would put it into practice in terms of avoiding that. And, and it really, you know, leadership is about doing tough things. It's about making tough decisions. It's about, you know, in, embracing uh, the challenges that you're faced with. And more, most importantly, it's about showing the people that you're leading that you're not scared of um, um, what is uh, what is ahead of you, whether you know what it is or not. And, you know, that there's many ingredients to the whole thing that, you know, fundamentally, um, you, you, you've, you've got to be comfortable in your own skin. You've got to be um, humble. Um, you, you, respect flows both ways. Uh, you can't demand it. Um, you have to earn it. And, uh, you know, and, and you've got to be compassionate. Um, and you've got to show the people that you're leading that uh, you, 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 have, um, you have a way forward. The way forward is credible. Uh, and then you're not scared of um, the, the bumps and, uh, and waves and sea state and bad weather or whatever it is that's going to be uh, coming your way. And then you're going to get them where you, you, they need to be. So that's, that's my view. But I think the concept of avoiding cheap leadership um, because it is exactly that it's cheap it's disposable and it just doesn't last i wish we had all day to talk to you we've we have about a minute left how worried about are you about what's going on in the world right now we have the pandemic we have international unrest in the streets in many nations we have militaries pointing the pointy end of their stuff at each other how worried are you um i i am concerned um you know what's the what's the line between worried and concerned? I don't know. Um, I think um, I, I think we're not out of the woods. Um, we're not out of the woods nationally. We're not out of the woods internationally. I think uh, we really have to have our wits about us um, individually and as a nation um, and as allies. Um, I think some of the very uh, foundations of that rules-based system that I mentioned a few uh, minutes ago are, are potentially in jeopardy, and, and I think we need to really um, focus. Um, we've got to get through this together. Uh, you know, it's not just a hashtag. It's real. Uh, we are in this together, um, but uh, that doesn't just mean local community. Uh, sadly, that means the, the international community as well. And um, unfortunately, there, there are um, people and 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 actors and states out there 
that are, are trying to capitalize on this, and uh, we just have to be ready because I, right. I think uh, I think it's going to be a rough a rough road ahead. Admiral Norman, thank you so much for giving us of your time today. Really, really appreciate that, and uh, I hope we can stay in touch and uh, have you back. Roy, it, it would be my pleasure, and thank you, and thank you for your time, and all the best to your uh, to your listeners, and wash your hands and stay safe. Absolutely, thank you, Admiral Norman. Cheers. Bye bye. These are uh, very, very difficult issues to talk about, but it's extremely important, as you know. So Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, Matthew DeGroote's next hearing with the Alberta Review Board will take place, and they'll examine his situation. And uh, the options they have annually is to retain Mr. DeGroote in a secure facility, grant a conditional discharge, or decide on an absolute discharge, which is what happened with Vince Lee, also... um, um, Let's change his name now, Will Baker. And that's uh, Carol Dedelli's nightmare. Joining me on the program uh, is Carol Dedelli. And we've talked many times about NCR and about Carol's case and her son, Tim McLean, and what happened to him on that bus in Manitoba. Hi, Carol. Hi, Roy. How are you? Well, I'm, fu- I'm fine, but uh, I'm always horrified when we, when we have to talk about these issues, but it's so important. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my. I... I... I'm always grateful for the opportunity. It's been too many years, 12 years, and really no changes. Yeah, and, and you've worked so so hard, so hard for Canadians on this particular NCR legislation. Also with me is Greg Paris. His, uh, his daughter, Katie, was in the House on April 14th, 2014. Mr. Paris, uh, how, do, how, are you, how are you feeling approaching Tuesday when uh, Matthew DeGroote's hearing with the Alberta Review Board takes place? How are you? Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we're always uh, extremely anxious leading up to uh, these reviews because we're, we know nothing of the recommendations that are going to be made, and we always know they're going to be worse than what we expect in terms of the privileges that he's being granted. So we're anxious, we're angry, um, frustrated that a system allows this sort of thing to happen where individuals like him are so quickly um, meant to be reintegrated into society. So mostly anxious and anger. When you and I talked earlier this morning, uh, you mentioned your victim's impact statement and what had happened to it. And what you told me, what you shared with me, was a very familiar story. Would you share with us what took place? What happened to your victim's impact statement? Yeah, we um, because we're doing this online because of COVID, uh, usually we don't get the redacted um, impact statement until we're literally in front of them and have to present it. So we don't even know what's been taken out of it. But in this case, because we have to work from home, and do this remotely, uh, they had to send us a copy of our of our changes. Um, I decided this year, after many multiple-page uh, reviews, to keep it really simple, to like one page, and at least half of my page of words was redacted because we're not allowed to say a lot of things um, related to, to this process. We can't say anything about the current situation in terms of what the board, we can't criticize the board, we can't criticize... Uh, Matt DeGroote, and as you pointed out, we can't use the word murder because murder is tied to a judicial system. 
So we can't even use the fact that they were murdered, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder, but was found not criminally responsible. So it's actually written up that he was found guilty of first-degree murder, but we can't say that anymore. So there's a lot of words we can't choose to use. We can't say anything inflammatory. I can't even use the word blood. That's descriptive of an incident that occurred last year in Australia that everybody heard about that set me off in terms of my... Um, concerns. I'm not allowed to use those kinds of descriptions. So our entire language is completely controlled by what the board and or the the lawyers, particularly the the defense lawyer, feel is incendiary or inflammatory. Yeah, a victim's impact statement should be a victim's impact statement. Otherwise, what's the point? Carol, all this sounds familiar to you, terribly familiar, doesn't it? It certainly does. And, um, I believe it was my first impact statement when I got it back and everything was blacked out on it. It absolutely had no resemblance to what I was trying to say or portray. It didn't describe the devastation to my family. Um, So I promptly put it on the 6 o'clock news. And that way, way more people got to hear it anyway. What, Carol, Carol, what's this 12-year, how, how would you describe the 12-year journey that you've been on? <laughs> the most horrific journey a person can take when you, when you start it by burying your child. And then you go through the motions and the processes and the, the systems that fail everywhere, which is what resulted in this happening in the first place. When you have to survive that on a daily basis, it's a nightmare. I, I know that I've done everything in my power to bring it to the attention of the lawmakers of this country. I spoke to the issue and I spoke clearly to the Senate committee and still no changes. I'm so grateful not to be in this fight alone anymore because it felt like I've been by myself for a long time. I'm very grateful that there's another family member able to speak out. And I think that it's not as small of a number as everybody would like us to believe. NCR killings happen more often than we want to acknowledge and it needs to change. How we deal with these NCR killers needs to change. We can't the offenses, the index offenses is how they refer to the slaughters of our children. We can't do anything about these index offenses occurring in the first place, but we can certainly stop a second offense from happening by the same offender, now patient. We can't call him an offender anymore. Now the, the correct term is he's a patient. Yeah. Uh, and now he's just a free member of society. Going by now, this is Vince Lee, yeah. We don't know where Vince Lee is or what he's doing because he's not no. Vince Lee anymore, and he has no record. Greg, uh, I, I've been accused at times when I've talked about this issue of being insensitive to mental health issues, and I just by challenging, not criminally responsible. And I don't understand how people can take that attitude or that approach that by challenging not criminally responsible, you're attacking mental health issues. It's certainly not that way. How do you see that? And how do the other families see that? If um, I imagine you've heard the same thing. Well, the other four families and, and myself, we, you know, we talk a lot and we've talked a lot over the last six years. Um, 
we're not against anything to do with mental health issues at all. Everyone has some sort of mental health issues in their family if you if you dig deep enough. What we're trying to say is people like Matt DeGroote need to be monitored their entire life, not only for the safety of the public, but also for his own well-being such that he can stay balanced. He's not going to recover from schizophrenia. It's it's you take medication to try to create a balanced life. And so part of the monitoring that we're looking for is also for his own uh, lifelong support that he's going to require because he's going to need more help than just his own family as, as time goes by. So we're not challenging mental health issues. We understand that he, he's mentally ill, but he, he still knew he was killing our kids when, he, when it happened. He has admitted to that. So he's capable of murder. And his own doctors have said very clearly, both his treatment teams in Calgary and Edmonton have both clearly stated that if he was to devolve again, the outcome would be catastrophic and he would kill everyone in his line of vision like he did in April of 2014. So when you say that, it's hard, you know, people criticize you for attacking mental health. We are attacking a situation where someone should never be allowed the opportunity to kill again in an in an unmedicated state. So monitoring is the way to go. Do you have an expectation, uh, Greg, about what's going to take place Tuesday and beyond Tuesday? Oh, I have a lot of concerns. Uh, you mentioned some of the um, privileges he's been granted last year. Well, there's two on the list that 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 you didn't mention. Um, he was allowed last year unsupervised travel within Alberta to go on vacation for a week. And they also added another privilege after their pre-review, um, or after their pre-review recommendations, they said that he could take up to a week outside unsupervised to start living in a halfway house. So he could be in a halfway house as we speak. And, and I'm thinking that they're going to be looking for a conditional discharge this year. And, and his lawyer last year started bringing up absolute discharge already, only three years after being found NCR. So we have a lot of fears that the privileges are going to continue to escalate. And, you know, he killed five people. Vince Lee mutilated Tim McLean, one individual. And this guy's on a faster trajectory than Vince Lee to be unsuper- unsupervised. We have a I lot think, of years. Uh, yeah. uh, Greg Paris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Carol, thank you. You've done so much really for uh, on the issue and kept it kept it in the forefront, which it needs to be because Canadians need to be aware and uh, there needs to be more, uh, there needs to be debate, there needs to be discussion. And if you're looking for a, a really excellent story on, on this terrible case, You'll find it on Global News, the Brentwood Five Massacre. Go to globalnews.ca and look for the Brentwood Five Massacre. Uh, It's done by Nancy Hickst. Let's talk about First Nations communities in Canada, and specifically about the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in British Columbia and the LNG Alliance. And how significantly will the uh, project on completion impact on the lives of Wet'suwet'en First Nations people, and how much division remains within the nation over the project, and then by extension, how much will projects like LNG Alliance, in fact, uh, affect positively First Nations people's realities? In uh, last month, about three weeks ago, 
We spoke with um, Karen Ogan and Stuart Muir about the uh, task force for real jobs and real recovery, and they were projecting some 2.2 million jobs being created if natural resources are properly uh, developed and sold, and this country will benefit. 2.2 million jobs and hundreds of billions of dollars of income. Karen Ogan is the CEO for the First Nation LNG Alliance, former chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, and currently a council member for her nation. She holds the National Natural Resources, Energy and Economic Development Portfolios, and we spoke uh, with Ms. Ogan last, last time we were on the air. I wanted to follow up, and uh, Ms. Ogan, I, I lo- saw your op-ed piece in the, in the Vancouver Sun, and, and I just want to quick quote from it from the beginning. So I see the green light for LNG Canada as meaning not just jobs and revenue. To me, it means a chance for affected First Nations to take a small step toward narrowing that gap between their standard of living and that of non-Indigenous indigenous Canadians and beginning to deal with a myriad of social problems. Would you, could we start by talking about that, please? So that comment about the green light uh, for jobs, revenues, and really... For us, it's wanting to narrow narrow that gap on socioeconomic issues that are that we face in our communities today. Yeah, you uh, you wrote in that op-ed piece: if Indigenous peoples were given the same access to economic opportunities available to other Canadians, the resulting increase in employment would result in an additional six point nine billion dollars per year in employment income and approximately one hundred thirty-five thousand newly employed Indigenous people. That is huge. And talk to us, please, about that. And how does the LNG project fit into the overall perspective of making that happen? Well, I think what when we talked about jobs and training and uh, for this LNG project, uh, initially the province and industry had given uh, the First Nations uh, training dollars to sort of train our members in certain fields, like in terms of clearing camps and catering and security. And, you know, there's all kinds of different opportunities along with the pipeline uh, where uh, we were promised by the company that, you know, when this project gets under construction, we're going to have uh, joint venture partnerships any business that wants to do any work on this pipeline must have a joint venture partnership with an Indigenous organization or nation. That was, you know, something that will benefit our people. And so um, we wanted, what we wanted out of that was careers, uh, because we really need to build capacity within our community. You know, these are short-term projects, three, four years of construction, but what we were hoping is that we would be able to have training opportunities that would give uh, trade opportunities to our people to get their red seals and whatever fields they so choose. And so at the end of the project, we would have people that have careers, that have trades, that have red seals under their belt. That was our hope, to make it a longer-term vision for our people. Uh, because in essence and in reality, Unless you have your own source revenue, our little nation cannot afford uh, expensive training. I'll give you one example. One is uh, heavy equipment operator training. That training in itself for one individual is about twenty to twenty-five thousand, and the prices may have gone up over the years. But our nation cannot afford that type of training. 
And so when the companies came in, those that type of training was offered by different uh, training groups. And we promoted our people to take that training because this is our chance to get our people into training that we cannot afford on our own. So yeah. we've done that, and it remains to be seen. As the company is in construction mode now, I would like to see the numbers in terms of how many of our people actually have red seals or are on their path to red seals and developing careers out of this this opportunity. So yeah. even though we're in construction mode here for the next three or four years, uh, I'd like to see the numbers in terms of how many of our First Nations people are employed. I know there are many. I just haven't seen facts, hard facts and stats in terms of, you know, the 20 First Nations on the line, plus other First Nations that are in need of jobs. <clears throat> the other You're thing right. that I see as well, you know, given this pandemic and how it's affected our economy, I can only guess that this CGL line is offering employment to those that don't have employment and migrating here to BC to get that employment. And I think that's really important. I think it's not only important to Indigenous people, but to the mainstream society, to the rest of BC and to the rest of Canada. I think uh, we need to find ways and means to increase our economic recovery from this pandemic. And this is one of the ways we can do it. Uh, how contentious an issue is the pipeline in your nation now? Well, I think that uh, everyone has seen, uh, you know, January of every year for the last three or four years, how the blockades have really got the attention of the rest of Canada and probably the world. And rightfully so. I, I you know, I'm with Sultan. I, I agree with uh, the rights and title issue for our people. I agree that we have unceded territory here in BC. No one negates all of that. I, I think what the, <clears throat> the issue here is, is, is about the Wet'suwet'en needing to have a Wet'suwet'en summit where we're able to, to be able to speak and express ourselves on what we see would help our nation move forward and come to a, a resolve where our people can actually sit down and, and discuss these issues without reprimand or without backlash. I think no matter what nation we're in or what society we're in, there's disagreement. We're going to face that. It's how we come through that. And my view, you know, I'm not an expert on conflict resolution, but I know that both parties need to be willing to sit down and, you know, be able to say their piece. And the other person needs to be, be able to try to find a way to understand where they're coming from and come to some sort of a resolve so that our people will benefit. That should be our, our reason why we sit down because we have, I'm not sure the population of our people, but we have so many Wet'suwet'en people that are relying on the leadership, not only the hereditary chief leadership, but the elected leadership in these communities. And we must do our due diligence. We must take those steps to, towards reconciliation within our nation. And, you know, what, what's happened since those blockades, they got 
national and international recognition. And, you know, from my perspective, it seems like Indigenous people need to get to those extremes before Canada and BC and the rest of the provinces will listen. That we've been run roughshod over for the last 150, 200 years. You know, I, I think about uh, the history of Canada, how that hasn't been taught in any grade schools or high schools. Uh, I didn't learn about my history until I went to post-secondary, and that was in the 90s. And so now people are starting to learn about our history. Not all of Canadians know about that history. The other piece is about the history of resource development. I, I read and I promote uh, the late Jim Prentice's book on uh, the Triple Crown, where he talks about the history of resource development, but he doesn't go back far enough. Uh, the reason I say that is uh, I look at similarities with, with the Americans um, a couple of years ago, I went to Montana and visited that site of Custer's Last Stand where uh, his troops got slaughtered by the Indigenous people. And so as I read the history of the Americans on how uh, they were being, the plan was, was to take them over to extract the, the natural resources of, of the U.S. And so, and I think that Canada followed suit. Um, Ms. Hogan, did I, did I, am I understanding you correctly that you, do you have doubts that the companies are going to do what they've committed to do? Well, I, I guess from my perspective, sitting on, on council, first, let me just sort of finish off what I was saying. I think just to make a small statement that the history of resource development really needs to be looked at and why, what brings us to today on why there were so many blockades. And the, the other issue about the Wet'suwet'en reconciliation, that still needs to happen yet. And it's, I think there's plans for that to happen. And right now, BC and Canada are continuing to meet with the OW without the elected council. And basically, they are, they are drafting a treaty without our consultation and consent. So that still needs to be uh, you know, resolved yet. The other piece uh, that you're talking about, the poverty issues and uh, all of the expectations that the Indigenous people had on this line, I think that those are our expectations that we want. And what I would like to see, because we're you know, moving into construction, even though we are within the pandemic, um, as I said, jobs and employment are, are a plus, but I think... You know, it remains to be seen yet, and I think, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt for our alliance to sort of call those companies, CGL, uh, LNG Canada, um, the prime contractors, to ask us. Like, we can ask them. We want to do a report card. Give mm-hmm. us the numbers in terms of the uh, statistics uh, of Indigenous people uh, employed. Give us the numbers uh, across the board. Uh, give us the numbers in terms of the procurement opportunities that were promised to the Indigenous people. And what is the ratio going back to the nations? Um, may I ask you this? Like- I'm sorry to interrupt, but may I, I'm just looking at the clock here. Uh, how much consultation is actually taking place? How, commun- how much communication is taking place? How often are you consulted and contacted? Uh, we, CGL... Um, and TC Energy has been contacting our 
nation quite significantly, and we continue to bring up our issues to them. And uh, you know, we're hoping to to hear from a from the company even further uh, when they have their next leadership meeting. Uh, you know, we want to ask questions. We want to be able to um, find out facts in terms of the employment piece for our people and the training and the procurement opportunities. I think those are critical to our nation as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, let me take you back, and we have about a minute, uh, just over a minute. Uh, the issue of the reconciliation and the uh, treaty and the work between the federal government and uh, and uh, the heritage chiefs, if I understand it correctly. Uh, talk to us some more about that. Well, I think that everyone knows that we must reconcile for for a nation to move forward, and I think that um, I think everybody sort of aspires to that. And there are um, the office of Wisconsin is that's what their plan is, but I think that uh, there needs to be an element of trust on how this process will unfold, um, and. Like I said, the whole objective should be about inclusivity with our people, uh, transparency, the accountability piece, and uh, I, I can't emphasize trust any more. We need to find that trust in uh, to build a really meaningful, trustful relationship. Okay. Where we need to be. No animal, nobody, what animal would say such a thing? And especially since I've done more, I think that almost anybody to help our military. Well, let's find out what the uh, view of a career United States military officer is on this. Colonel Peter Mansur joins us, U.S. Army retired, former executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq, and uh, author of Surge. Um, Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for the time. It's been a while since we last spoke. I, I, I imagine you have firsthand seen wounded and dead soldiers. Oh, absolutely. I had 24 uh, de- uh, killed soldiers, um, soldiers who were killed in my brigade in Baghdad and Karbala in 2003-2004. So any remarks that disparage uh, service to our country in uniform really uh, hit home to me. So what are your thoughts on the column in The Atlantic declaring President Trump in 2018 declined to visit the Ain Mar American Cemetery near Paris because he, quote, quoting the article here, did not believe it important to honor American war dead, according to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day. What do you make of that? Well, it goes beyond that. Uh, There was another incident in Arlington where he's standing over the uh, grave of, I think, John Kelly's son, and he's calling the soldiers who served in Iraq and Afghanistan losers uh, and suckers for not pursuing a career that makes them more money. Uh, If true, it's absolutely outrageous, and the man does not deserve uh, to be president of the United States one day longer. Um, You know, the report was independently confirmed by the Associated Press, but this is a political inkblot test here in America. The uh, Trump supporters say it's fabricated, Uh, And they won't believe it unless uh, the sources that uh, gave those quotes are named and come forward. And, uh, of course, they're reticent to do that, given what happens to people who cross Donald Trump. Do you think that uh, perhaps General Kelly should step up and and, and either support what the Atlantic wrote or, or refute it? 
if he's the source and and if he heard that uh, the president remarked that over his son's grave uh, I, I think he should step forward uh, but i understand why he doesn't because uh, it would put him squarely in the uh, crosshairs of the pro trump crowd they would call it um, they would call him a liar uh, you know if there's no third party there to uh, corroborate the conversation then it's he said versus he said uh, and it's just uh, it's a real difficult spot for anyone um, in that situation now, Mr. Trump did speak disparagingly about Senator John McCain, who was a prisoner of the North Vietnamese for more than five years, by saying, he's not a war hero. I like people who weren't captured. Uh, I just want to play you a bit of audio of the president on another occasion uh, upon the death of John McCain speaking publicly. Go ahead and play that clip. McCain didn't get the job done for our great vets and the VA, and they knew it. The crowd listened in silence as Trump told them he never got a thank you for authorizing the use of an Air Force jet to transfer McCain's casket for his memorial service. I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which as president I had to approve. I don't care about this. I didn't get thank you. That's okay. We sent him on the way, but I wasn't a fan of John McCain. Not my kind of guy, but some people like him, and I think that's great. When you hear that... Colonel Mansour, how do you react? How do your fellow officers in the United States Navy or, or Army or Navy or Air Force Forces react, do you think, retired and current? Well, it, it angers me. You're basically saying that prisoners of war cannot be heroes, overlooking the fact that, uh, uh, you know, a number of prisoners of war have been awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions uh, inside uh, prisoner of war camps and their continued resistance to the enemy. Um, you know, I, I'm okay with Donald Trump having political disagreements with John McCain, but to attack his service in Vietnam, attack his uh, service in uniform and say he's a loser because he got captured, it's just it's out of bounds. And, and so this is why I'm inclined to believe that the recent reports are true, because it's totally in keeping with what Trump has talked about in the past. Uh, about uh, his avoiding service in Vietnam, about anyone who went to Vietnam as a, a sucker, you know, they couldn't find, they weren't smart enough to find a way out. Um, and, uh, you, you know, anyone in the, who, who isn't in business and making a lot of money is, is not in the right career field. Yeah, that, I found that, uh, that clip we played disturbing as well, but it doesn't uh, verify the account in the Atlantic. And, I was just reading again about um, uh, Mr. Trump, reportedly, according to The Atlantic, standing beside General John Kelly, his former chief of staff at Arlington Cemetery, while there to pay respect to the war dead, including General Kelly's son, Robert, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2010, that the president said to General Kelly while standing at the graveside of Robert Kelly, I don't get it, what was in it for them? Uh, I still think, and takes us back to something we talked about a couple of minutes ago, that it would be, if it, I think it's incumbent on someone who actually uh, was there and has spoken to the, to the to media, to the Atlantic or to the Associated Press or whomever, to step up and say, yeah, look, this is me, I, I was there, I saw that, I heard that. Yeah, it's the only way that uh, there will be any sort of resolution. And, and even then, the, the folks that support Donald Trump in America are so adamantly in support that they simply don't care. 
his comment during his campaign that he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and, and he wouldn't lose any support. Everyone kind of laughed it off at the time. Uh, it's so spot on. It's it's amazing. Colonel Mansour, what do you make of uh, what President Trump has done for the U.S. military since he's been in office? Well, uh, it's a mixed bag. He has uh, approved pay raises the same at the same rate that Obama did, so there's really no change there. He has uh, amped up the military budget, um, and the military is like that, so that uh, has enabled them to buy new equipment and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, he's abandoned valued allies in uh, northeast Syria, which has angered the special forces troops that work so closely with uh, with the Syrian Democratic Forces to uh, fight ISIS, and now that they basically had to abandon them there on the ab- battlefield. Um, and um, and so in terms of some of his policies uh, towards uh, serving service members overseas, um, it, it hasn't been good. Um, you know, his uh, pulling troops out of Germany or his threats to pull troops out of Germany and abandon NATO. Uh, you know, most military uh, officers and, and soldiers who have served over in Europe really like our NATO allies, enjoy serving over there. And it certainly doesn't cost the United States any more money to, to station forces there than it does in the United States. So his policies um, are not so good in terms of just the, the amount of money he's applied towards the military, the military likes that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.